Hey, we're jumping into about a five to six week series focusing on the first 18 chapters of Exodus. The first 18 chapters focus on God's deliverance of the Israelite nation out of slavery. The last 20 plus chapters focus more on the glory of God at at Mount um, Sinai. And so again, we're focusing on the first 18. We actually may kind of come back uh, around to the last 20 plus chapters later in the year, but again, we're focusing on the first 18, taking about five to six weeks looking at it. And the concept that we're looking at is this, the departure from slavery. Really take a look at God's deliverance. So hopefully my prayer for us is that we gain a greater understanding of the enslavement that we have, may have been in and how we fight against that and how we fight for people that are enslaved in some way. Um, really, there's three main um, things that I want to take away from each talk as we jump into the first 18 chapters in Exodus. And those being, you'll see these up on the screen, is first one, why study Exodus, is it gives us a great window into the character of God. There's no doubt that we will have a greater understanding of the heart of God as we go through these 18 chapters. Number two is Exodus gives us a great picture to the gospel. Um, it definitely points and affirms to the message of the gospel. And the, and the redemptive work through Christ and the just, justice-filled work that came through the cross and through Jesus Christ's Jesus Christ life on earth. Um, and then the third one is it will provide us on what a God-shaped mission will look like. The scope of our mission should, des- should desperately mirror the scope of God's. And the mission we see, you know, the big mission that we talk about in this church is the one we find in Matthew 28. And yes, that is critical, but we're going to see more than that as we jump into these 18 chapters in Exodus. So you all ready? You ready to get in the Word? Let's do it. Let me pray. Lord, I do thank you for your Word, and I just pray the simple prayer tonight is that as we read it and as we study it, that it would, that it would truly empower us to worship you and to work for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're going to take a look at the first... Kind of two chapters, really, tonight. And so, um, yeah, let's jump in. Here, let's take a look at the first, first five verses here in chapter 1. So it says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. And so first, I want us to just have an understanding of who jo- Joseph is, why he ended up in Egypt, how he ended up in Egypt. But before I kind of jump into that, I think it's important for me to mention this covenant that was made to Joseph's great-grandpops, Abraham, Father Abraham, right? And so Joseph is the, grandson, the great-grandson of Abraham. So we got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. And this unilateral covenant was made between God and Abraham. Unilateral meaning that there was this agreement that was made between two parties, but really the responsibility only lies in one of the parties. And I think we know who that is. That's God, if that makes sense. So you tracking so far? This Abrahamic, they call it the Abrahamic covenant, covenant, was made between God and Abraham. But again, he was the only one that held responsibility in fulfilling and living up to this covenant that was made. And really, you, bo- you can boil it down to three promises that were made between God and Abraham. Those three promises being, and we find this in 
Genesis 12 and 15. So if you want to look at it later, feel free to do so. But this Abrahamic covenant, again, encompasses, kind of boils down to three main promises that God, again, made to Abraham. The first one was the promise of land, and this land being Canaan. So, uh, and we know in Scripture that this place was described as a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was a place that you would want to settle. So it was like you were living in Ann Arbor and got resettled in Columbus, Ohio, right? Amen to that, amen? And so this, this, it was this promise of land to Abraham that he was going to give to him or his descent and the descendants, right? The second promise was uh, the promise of many descendants. And so at this time, Abraham was about 99 years old. His wife was 90. They didn't think at this point they could have any kids. And God made this promise that your descendants are going to be many, even as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And the last promise that was made to to Abraham in this covenant was the promise that God would bring blessing and redemption to all people through the descendants of him. And obviously that the climactic point of that was through Jesus Christ. He's in that line. And what's really cool is that in this part of the covenant, this promise was reiterated also to Isaac and Jacob. What is also really cool to mention is that the Abrahamic covenant extends to the future kingdom of Christ. And we find that in Ezekiel 20, chapter 20, chapter 36, and chapter 37, which really dovetails well into the, the, the series that Kimball led us on with the day of the Lord. And so it's important for us to understand contextually this covenant that was made to Abraham that the descendants are aware of, this Abrahamic covenant. So who is Joseph and how did he end up in Egypt? So a lot of us are familiar with this, but Joseph was sold into slavery by his 11 brothers pretty much because of the jealousy they had towards him. And Joseph made his, and he ended up in as, as a slave uh, underneath the rule of the, the Egyptian kingdom, right? The Egypt kingdom. And so he, in a sense, made his way, his way up through the ranks as a slave in the Egyptian kingdom, pretty much when you look at scripture because of his integrity more than anything else. When you look at this scripture, he did not compromise his integrity, and God honored that and gave him great influence in the Egyptian kingdom. And so in a sense, he worked his way so much up through the ranks, he became pretty much in control of Egypt. He was Pharaoh, the king's right-hand man. And so um, what ended up happening then is that uh, there was a famine that swept through the world, essentially, uh, Egypt and the surrounding world, if that makes sense. And uh, um, um, Abraham, or sorry, Joseph had this dream where he realized that there was going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And so he had the fortitude to figure out that, hey, we should probably think about saving up enough food so that when this famine hits, we can survive and even the surrounding world can survive. And so the surrounding world came to Egypt during this time of famine to gather this food that they had stored up. And part of the people that came to gather some of this food were Jacob's family, his 11 brothers and his father. And here we see that eventually this, his family settled then in Egypt. Let's continue on in verses 6 and 7. It says, Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, which is exactly the verbiage that you see in Genesis 12 and 15. And so God used their time in Egypt to grow the descendants of Abraham. 
And we see a piece of the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled. And here it says that they became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So what started off as 70 people in Joseph's family turned into the thousands, 600,000 to be exact. And that's men only. And so if you were to add the children and women, I think on the conservative side, you could say there was about 2 million Israelites that had, that had grown in numbers in the Egyptian kingdom. Does that make sense? And so this is where we're at in the story. The numbers are great. The Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant is be, being fulfilled. Here as we jump into these next verses 8 through the end of the chapter, we're going to see... Um, we're going to see the main, four main reasons why there was a need for res, restorative justice to take place with these people that we see are being oppressed. And so jump in here with me, starting in verse 8. Again, we're going to see four main reasons for the need of restorative justice. Then a new king, so a new pharaoh, to whom Joseph meant nothing to. So again, this, the previous pharaoh loved Joseph. There's a new guy that's come in, and there's nothing of Joseph and really much of his descendants in that relationship. And he came to power to Egypt. Look, he said to his people, so to the Egyptians, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country, inferring that he did not want them to leave the country because we understand that the, that the Israelites are benefiting the Egyptian kingdom. And so the first need for restorative justice, the for, first form of oppression that we're seeing here is political oppression. And so the king is using his political power to oppress this group of immigrants, these refugees. And how often have we seen that today in today's culture? The oppression of refugees, of immigrants. It was true then, it's true today. Egypt made an executive de decision without the Israelites, even though Egypt has already benefited so much from the Israelite people. So that's the first level of oppression we see. Let's go on to 11 through 14. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithon and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. Think of this. The Israelite people built essentially two cities underneath enslavement, right? But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So God is still blessing them. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And we know that in summer months, temperatures could exceed 100 degrees, So they made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So the second form of oppression that we see here is economic oppression through enslavement and forced labor. People of power today continually are abusing and oppressing and enslaving the vulnerable, weak, and under-resourced. We know today, globally, there are over 40 million people that are caught up in modern slavery, 16 million of which are forced into labor, labor exploitation. 
And that doesn't include those in the sex trade. This is just forced labor exploitation. Exploitation. If you were to just Google or YouTube forced labor exploitation, you'll be, your blood will boil at what it is you see today. So again, it's not just true of what we see here in Exodus, but it's also true today. Let's move on. Verses 15 through the end, we're going to see the next one. Next form of, of oppression. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah. I want to just pause right here. I love that, that the text that God, that the author of Exodus honored these women, which was so contradictory to the, to the culture of the day, where women were looked down upon. And so when you, it says then, 16, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. I love that these women, that the fear of God that they had trumped their fear of men. I love that. I if we, I bet if we were all honest with ourselves, I bet we would probably be somewhat ashamed in just the past week how we chose to make decisions based upon our fear of men as opposed to fear of God. If you were to take a moment to think, to pause and reflect on how many decisions you made just this past week in light of your fear of men as opposed to God, I think you would be ashamed of yourself. I know I am. And here are these women who are facing potential death, execution because of decisions they're making, chose to fear God. Where's your fear and reverency of the Lord? I challenge us that it would mirror that of these two women that we see in Exodus. It goes on here. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Man, the, the story of Exodus and Moses would be dramatically different if these two women did not walk out faithfully and obediently and feared God. Verse 20 goes on to say, So God was kind to the midwives, and the, and the people increased, so they continue to grow. The Abrahamic covenant, this agreement that God made to Abraham, is coming true and became even more numerous. And because the midwives, again, Feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. I just want to pause right here before I talk about the uh, uh, oppressive state that we see in these verses. Is there not a, a pattern that we see in Scripture where God takes what was meant for death and destruction and turn it around to life and salvation. Is that not a theme that we see in Scripture? Let me give you a few examples. Noah and the flood. Jonah and the whale. Christ and the cross. How often does God take what the enemy has used for evil, turn it around, and rub it in his face for our gain and God's glory? Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. And this is the message we see here, and it's the message that we see at the cross. And this is what it is pointing to. But the oppressive state that we see in these verses from 15 to 22 is an oppression 
that we can define as social oppression. We see it when, if we were to summarize what we see in these verse, verses, Pharaoh, the king, initiated this state-sponsored genocide demanding the killing, the murdering of all male Hebrew babies. Imagine you waiting nine months for the birth of your child to be born. You're a Hebrew. You have no idea if it's a male or a female. The anxiety and the fear that swelled up inside of you over the course of that nine months. And stack that against the amount of oppression they're already experiencing. This level of social oppression is demonic. And we still see things like this today. But ultimately, I think what we see Pharaoh and the Egyptians trying to do to the Israelite nation, the Israelite people, is to instill fear in them so that they will remain in bondage to slavery. Much like our captivity to sin and death before we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But praise the Lord for the liberation that we face from sin and death through the love of Jesus Christ. And praise the Lord not just for the liberation from sin and death, but from the fear of sin and death and how crippling that can be to us. Praise the Lord for that liberation that he gives us. I thank, you for the ver- I thank God for the verse that we see in 1 John 4, 18. We talk about it, I feel like, often up here. But where it says that perfect love drives out all fear. Man, the love displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ should drive out the fear of not just sin and death, but the fear of then how we get to live our lives for him. God wanted to free them from the bondage of not just slavery, but from the bondage of fear. And that's what Christ has done for us today through the cross, through the love portrayed on the cross. When we put our faith in him, that love should drive out any fear we have of, of, of death and the fear of death. There's security we have in Jesus Christ, and all it takes is putting our faith in him. Then throughout these verses, we know that there's a level of spiritual oppression that has taken place. That's the fourth one. Spiritual oppression is taking place. God's goal then was more than to deliver the people from Egypt, but to deliver Egypt out of the people. And let me explain that by sharing a verse found in Acts 7, 39. And this is where Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin. Kind of, they're kind of put on trial, right? And, and they say this before the, the, the Sanhedrin in Acts 7, 39. It says, but our ancestors, speaking to this, our ancestors refused to obey him, him being God. So our ancestors refused to obey God. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, where Egypt worshipped the sun, the stars, the skies, the rain. Ultimately, they worshipped the created and not the creator. And they were tempted to turn from what the promised land had to offer and all the, all the Abrahamic um, covenant had to offer and turn back to Egypt and worship the created things. If we were to take a look at Galatians 4, 8, 9, we understand that the temptation to turn back to former ways is great. Paul speaks about that time and time again. Just check out Romans. It speaks of that a ton. Even though we have been freed through the power of Jesus Christ, there's still this 
war within us between the spirit and the flesh. And the temptation can be great to turn back to evil ways. And so God just didn't want to deliver them out of Egypt. He wanted to deliver Egypt out of them. There was a temptation for them to go back to what it is that they worship there. This is reiterated in Exodus 4, and 23, which we'll get to in coming weeks. But this is when, um, spoiler alert, um, this is where um, Moses um, goes before Pharaoh. And he says these words to Pharaoh. He says, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me but you refuse to let him go. God, part of God's plan in the salvation plan is so that we are saved to worship him. We are made to worship him. And we see that if we were to look at Ephesians 1, 11, and 12, it speaks to that. We are created and saved to worship him. That's what God, God wanted to bring, wanted to bring salvation to the Israelite people so that they could experience the joy of worshiping him. There are few things in this world that even come close, that even come close to the joy that I've experienced in worshiping God with my mind, with my mouth, and by the way I live my life. In those three ways of me worshiping him, there's nothing that compares to the joy that is found in doing so. And God wanted them to experience this. And so we see this spiritual oppression taking place. And so... In this oppression, these four areas of oppression that has taken place, which is horrific, is demonic. We see, kind of jumping ahead, if we were to look, we're going to stay in, in Exodus, Exodus 2 here, but I just want to read from Exodus 3, 9 and 10. It says, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. This is God speaking. And I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And so we know this is the cry of the Israelite people. God has heard it, right? And he comes up with a plan. Let's go into um, Exodus 2. Exodus 2, starting at verse 1. Now a man of the now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket, which really a better translation for that is ark. There's only two times you see the word ark in scripture. It's the story of Noah, and it's here, which is interesting, right? So he put him in this papyrus ark, mini ark, for him, and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the rings along the bank of the Nile, his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. I don't think that this was like this kind of whimsical kind of plan that Moses' mom had. I, there, there's no way for me to prove or validate this in any way, but I think there was actually some strategery right here in this. Um, but I'm not going to get into that for time's sake. But I think actually there was, she didn't just toss him into the river and just hope for the best. I actually think there was strategy. What that strategy was, you can come talk to me later. I'd love to talk to you about it. But let's take a look here. Verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the baskets among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go to get 
one of the one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you. The providence and sovereignty of God that we see in this is overwhelming to me. It's overwhelming. Verse 8. Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. This is unbelievable. Only God can orchestrate something like this. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I would pay you. I would love to be a fly on the wall to see her holding back the reaction that she's feeling and the emotion that she's feeling. And then to be a fly on the wall when she goes back to her family and friends and she's holding her child again. It's unbelievable. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him up out of the water. I love that in just these first one and a half chapters, there are already four significant parallels between Moses as deliverer and Christ as deliverer. Let me highlight the four. Both of them were born in the midst of a powerful and oppressive nation slash people, a very unfriendly world at the time. Number two, both were a foreigner in a foreign land. Number three, male babies were sentenced to death. Number four, his life was born and preserved through faithful parents. The parallels are unbelievable. This is pointing us to the redemption, to the redemptive story of Jesus Christ. Let's go on here, though. Verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. And my guess is that he has been doing this a while based upon this, this scripture we see in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. I'm not going to get into that for time's sake, but I think he, was, he had separated himself from the Egyptian people for a while and tried to be with the Hebrews as much as he could. But he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, he's, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid them in the sand. His righteous anger led him to a horrific act, Right? Hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had several daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flocks. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up. You see again his, his fight and his heart for justice and came to rescue and water their flock. When the girls returned to Raul, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Based upon these last two verses, it makes me believe that this is a reoccurring instance that was happening with these daughters, right? And so Moses sweeps in. This heart of justice takes over. I wish I, I, wish I knew. I wish it said how he went about doing that, but it doesn't tell us. Verse 20. And where is he? Raul asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. We're going to pause there. We'll pick up next week at the next verse. I love, in these verses 11 through 23, even though 
I would never tell anyone to do this, to kill someone, but I love Moses' heart for justice. And there's, there is a part of me that wonders how much God chose Moses or how much he instilled even in him this heart for justice. This heart of justice that Moses has, has reflects so much the heart that God has for justice. I want to take a look at God's heart for justice in a few verses, few chapters found in Isaiah. These are going to be up in the, on the screen. But in, Isaiah is a book that has the most messianic prophets that we'll see, in a sense, prophecies about the coming of Christ. There's some incredible verses that are found in here. I want to share a few with them about God's heart for justice. Chapter 51, verses, just verses 4 and 5. This is what it says here. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become light to the nations. My righteousness, which is another way to describe justice, making things right. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. And my arm, take note of that, my arm will bring justice to the nation. The island will look to me and wait and hope for my arm. Who is it that we're speaking of here? It's Jesus. Jesus is justice. So the message of Jesus is justice. We see that here. The message of the gospel is a beautiful picture of justice. Go on to 53, just a couple chapters later. We're going to look at verse 1 and then 4 and 5 and 53. Remember the word arm from the previous, from 51. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. That's verse 2. You don't see it up there. And like a root of dry grass. So we know this is Jesus. And then it goes on, verse 4 and 5. We know these well. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. This is Jesus. Yet he considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Amen to that. So the message of the gospel is this message of justice that came through the cross of Jesus Christ. So we got this the, the message of, of the cross, this message of justice here. Turn with me to Isaiah, the very beginning of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 17. Isaiah is speaking to the people of Judah who are pretty much focused on this concept of religion, appearing right and doing right just by ceremonies, rituals, and sacrifices. And this is what he says to them. I love it. You don't see this up on the screen. But at the end of verse 16, it says, stop doing wrong. Then verse 17, it says, learn to do right, semicolon. So they're about to describe, he's about to describe what doing right looks like. So learn to do right, semicolon. Seek justice. Defend, and then it explains what justice looks like. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. We see justice again here. And here's what I want to emphasize in this. The justice that we see in Isaiah 51 and 53 and in other sections in Isaiah that we didn't get to, and the justice that we see here in Isaiah 1 and in other places in Isaiah that we didn't get a chance to look at. So we got Christ as justice. The message of the gospel is justice. 
acts of justice, they use literally the same word, mishpat. That's the word that you see, mishpat. And so you see these beautiful pictures of justice. Again, Christ as justice and acts of justice. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying acts of justice is synonymous to the gospel of justice. I am not saying that. But what I am saying, when we look at the text, when we look at Isaiah, without a shadow of a doubt, when we look at the text, acts of justice gives us this incredible opportunity to reflect and point to the acts of justice that were taken up on the cross through Jesus Christ. And so when we pursue and fight for justice, we have this opportunity to communicate the message of the cross as well. And we should not take that lightly. Let us not just love in word and deed, but in action and in truth. May we fight for justice, not through what it is we say, but also what we do. It points people to the cross. So the best, the simple way in my mind to define justice, because righteousness here is also used to to describe justice. Here's the simple way to define justice, to make wrong things right. If you can also think of it this way, if truth is what is, if that makes sense, if truth is what is, justice is what ought to be. So justice, again, is making wrong things right. Are we fighting to make wrong things right that we see in this world today? Not just people that are lost and don't understand the gospel and have not put in their faith in Jesus Christ, that act of justice. But are we fighting for the gospel through acts of justice? I want to take a moment to describe, uh, I'm just going to take a brief moment to describe kind of two, actually three, but I'm going to, you'll see what I'm getting at here real soon. But there's, I see justice in two ways. It's kind of the best way for me to put it. And then a third one I'm going to describe here in a little bit. But I'm going to, I'm going to kind of explain these through a story. So there is reactive justice. This is from more so my experience. And you're not going to see this necessarily blatantly in the word. I think there's, you see pictures of this in the word. And if you'd love to talk about this later, I, I'd love to talk to you about it. But we see reactive justice and restorative justice. And I'm going to explain this by telling a story. I went down to the river the other day to go fishing got to catch me some bass, right? And so uh, Kyle Atwood went with me. We, we love fishing, right? And so we went out to catch some bass, right? So I threw my first line in the water. And just as I threw it in, I saw this person floating by. And he's like, Phil, save me. The current is strong. I can't get out on my own. And before I could reach my hand out, he, sw- he was swept away. And then before I knew it, this next person sw- came sweeping by. And then another. And then another. And they kept, they kept shouting, Phil, help me. Pull me out. I need help. I can't do it on my own. Reactive justice would be for me to pull him out. That's a great thing. That's making a wrong thing right. But restorative action is going upstream to figure out why they're ending up in the river. Does that make sense? And so it is, it's, again, we need both. We need both as, as, uh, as participants in the kingdom of God. We need people that are reactive to injustices, but restorative by going upstream to figure out why they're ending up in the river. Are they ending up in the river based upon their own decisions that they make? Or are they being pushed in the river, river for some reason? But here's what, here's what I love. What else? This is what I call proactive justice. And it's discipleship. Are we people that are discipling others? Are we fulfilling the Great Commission in that way? We don't know what we don't know. And what I mean by that is if we are investing our lives in people through the act of discipleship, 
we don't know what they would end up getting into, so to speak, because of our investment in them. It is very proactive. It's hard to measure how much we're fighting for some injustices that could take place. But I believe in our fight for discipleship, we are fighting against injustices that we would never know that would take place otherwise if they didn't have someone investing in their life. And so may we be people in these three, uh, in these three playing fields. May we react. May there be reactive justice, restorative justice, and proactive justice. So when we see wrong things taking place in front of us, may we pull that person out of the river. But may we, if it is occurring time and time again, may we go up and restore that. But let us be proactive in the way that we disciple people. Does that make sense? Here, though, is the key ingredient. It's the fuel. Uh, I'll describe it this way. The fuel that helps us fight for acts of justice, for, for justice, when we see injustice taking place. And the ingredient is compassion. It's the fuel that we need is compassion. It is advantageous big time that the fight for justice is compassion. It is a compassion-led directive and not an obligatory-led directive. Because here's why. Obligation has me in mind. Compassion has others in mind. Obligation has inconvenience in mind. Compassion has opportunity in mind. Obligation is I have to. Compassion is I get to. There are incredible opportunities that are out there for us to come alongside the people, come alongside people that are hurting, that are oppressed, that are facing injustices, and, and we have this incredible opportunity to be the gospel to them in word and tongue and in action and in truth. Compassion is the fuel, though, as we fight for injustice, the injustices that are out there. And I want to explain why I believe this to be the case. This is exactly what the Lord, what God wanted to extend to his chosen people. If we were to look at Isaiah 14.1, and this is coming off the heels of chapter 13, which is describing this punishment that's going to take place with the Babylonians, which were a people group, group that oppressed the Israelite nation before Egypt did. And so what we see here is very true of, could be said, could be very true of, of what took place, again, on the heels of the oppression that was taking place from the Egyptian people. But in Isaiah 14.1, again, this is what the Lord wants to extend to his chosen people in light of oppression. Isaiah 14.1 says, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their land. Foreigners will join them and unite the descendants of Jacob. What God wanted these oppressed people to experience and to encounter more than anything else was the compassion he had for them. And that is what led him to set these people free, to find salvation. We see this to be the heart of God in the Old Testament with the oppressed people of the Israelite nation, the people that needed to be delivered, the people that needed to experience salvation. And we see this in the heart of Christ in the gospel accounts. And let's take a look at a couple examples. Before I do, I want to, there's a handful of accounts that we could take a look at where Christ is led by compassion. We don't have time to get into them all. But the same word is used, and I don't, the, the Greek word is huge. I can't even think about pronouncing it. 
but the, the, the way that we define compassion, it was a word that people actually had to make up because there wasn't a word to describe the feeling that they had. But the Greek, the way that you describe it is compassion is to be moved to one bowels, to one's bowels. Hence, to be moved to compassion. For the bowels back then were thought to be the seat of love and pity. So it was something that hit them in the gut, that compelled them to, to fight for the injustices that were in front of them. It's, when, it's like when you face, when you see something on the news or you see something in the world and this, this sense of burden overwhelms you and it hits you in the gut and it's turning and it compels you to act in some way. And so the, we got to have an understanding of what compassion means when we read the text here. But here I love and we're very familiar with this passage, Matthew 9, but to set up the verses we're going to take a look at. So we know that Christ is going from city to city to synagogue to synagogue and he's fighting for injustices that are taking place. He's being exposed to it, right? And he comes back and he kind of gives, there's like this synopsis of what he was doing in Matthew 9 at the end of Matthew 9 in verses 35 through 37. And it says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease of sickness. So we see Christ as justice, right? The message of that and the acts of justice that Christ is living out. It's just not one, it's both. We need to be in pursuit of both. So we see that in verse 35. And then here in 36, he says, when he saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion. So of all the times that he went out from city to city to synagogue to synagogue and he saw this brokenness and injustice, what filled him more than anything else was his spirit and this heart of compassion. He was filled with it. Are we? So when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without the shepherd. And then he told his disciples this, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are so few. Ask the Lord of the harvest so that more workers will be sent out. Pretty much what he's saying, ask what that is because I want you to go out. And I believe his message to them was that when you go out, have a heart, have a spirit of compassion. May that be your fuel that fights the injustices in this world. Are we clothing ourselves with compassion? Are we asking for it? Are we understanding it? There are people that are out in this world, we know this, that are, are, that are in need of this because they are like sheep without a shepherd. They are harassed. And they need to encounter the compassionate love of Jesus Christ. And he's asking you and he's asking me to communicate it, to show it, to express it. Are we fighting for injustices, but are you fueled by compassion? And may we do it because of this reason more than anything else. May we fight for injustice. May we be fueled by compassion because of this reason and understanding of what Christ has done for us. We know this parable well in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, where a son asked for an inheritance early, pretty much telling his father, I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. The father gives it to him. He takes it off, lives a wayward life. We know this story, right? Waste it all. He's eating pig food, right? And he realizes that, man, it's back with my, with my father where I need to be. Verse 20 in Luke 15 says this. So he got up, meaning that he was down. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was 
still a long way off, his father saw him and had what? Compassion for him. He saw him, had compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. He was led by compassion. The son says to the father, I am unworthy to be your son. I'm not worthy of this compassion. And the father says to him, BS. (laughs) Give him the finest robe. Put a ring on his finger. Let's throw him a party. And in that communicating to him that this compassion obliterates and washes over any guilt and any sin that he has committed. He's communicating to him, receive this gift of grace that has been fueled by compassion. Are we fueled by compassion? I don't want the fight for justice to be just obligatory. To be a, I have to because it's what it says in scripture. Are there times where we discipline ourselves to do that? Yes. But I want us to be filled with compassion. Are we clothing ourselves with compassion? Kimball, you can come on up. The application is simple to me. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to go in depth on how to apply this to your life. But I want us to be challenged with these simple three, these simple, three simple things. I want us to apply it in this way. May we know his compassion so may we like, we, like Chris says often, may we preach the gospel to ourselves often. May we know his compassion. May we ask to possess his compassion. And may we extend his compassion and fight for justice. Amen to that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for what it is we see in Exodus here. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is alive and active. Lord, I just thank you that your heart desperately cares for the oppressed, for those that are enslaved, for those that need to experience salvation in some way. Lord, I thank you for the example that we see in Moses. I thank you for the example that we see with the midwives, people that reflect your heart who are fighting for justice. Lord, but we want to be a people that are compelled, that are fueled by a spirit of compassion. Lord, I pray that that as we see the brokenness in the world, that it would break our heart. And that we would fight for what it is that we know that you are fighting for. Lord, we thank you that you have always been at work. Lord, we want to come alongside you and work with you. Empower us to do so. Lord, I pray that we would understand what it looks like to be filled with compassion. And to fight for justice and to make wrong things right. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.